Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Jess Walter on his latest novel, The Cold Millions. Jess Walter is the author of six novels, including Beautiful Ruins, which was a New York Times bestseller, The Financial Lives of the Poets, and The Zero. His most recent book is the short story collection We Live in Water. Jess lives in Spokane, Washington, and his next book, which we're going to be talking about today, The Cold Millions, is set in that city. Jess, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me. First of all, tell us how you would describe The Cold Millions. You know, I I think of myself kind of like a fusion writer sometimes. I'm always looking to fuse romance and irony. And and with this book, one of the things I wanted to fuse, I wanted to write an old-fashioned social novel, a labor novel about, you know, the beginnings of the labor movement in the United States. But I wanted it to feel like a Western. I wanted it to have those big archetypal characters and the kind of big action of a late Western. So I guess I would describe it as a labor Western, you know, full of uh, big characters. Well, you, you just mentioned the idea of a, of a fusion novelist there. And reading around your work, I've, I've seen it described that uh, all of your novels are very different from each other and The Cold Millions is very different again. And so I wonder if you think there is a, a common theme across all of your work. Yeah, I definitely think there is. It was one of the great compliments early on in my career. A bookstore employee said, I never know where to file your books. And I found that to be the best compliment. You know, I I feel like the story kind of defines itself. If I'm writing about 1909 Western um, labor activists and mining magnates and hobos, it shouldn't sound like a novel set in Italy in the 1960s. You know, it should have its own voice. And so, but I do think there is, there are these common themes and ideas and the tone maybe that runs through it. I think I'm kind of a wistful ironist at heart. And so, you know, I like the passage of time. I like books that, you know, in which you find out what happens to the characters and, uh, you know, and they live full lives. And I like, uh, I think also being a former journalist, I'm always looking at what's going on in the world around me. So even though The Cold Millions is set in 1909 in the West, it's really about income inequality and, and civil unrest and the kinds of things that, that have been going on, you know, in the United States and around the world for the last few years. We're going to come back to sort of the modern resonances of the book later on in the interview. But um, as we said, it's, it's set 
in the main in Spokane, Washington, up in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. And let's talk first of all about, obviously, that's where you live, it's, it's where you're from. And in researching this book in particular, let's talk about the original colonization of the, the Pacific Northwest and the town Spokane becomes by 1909, which is when this, this novel starts. Yeah, you know, most Western cities, much of the United States is named for the people driven from it. Um, Spokane. Yeah, which is really lovely, country. right? They named the place after. After the people they killed and drove away, right? Exactly. Um, the Spokane tribe, and actually your pronunciation is perfect, because it because even though people in the city call it Spokane with a, with a long O, the original word is Spokane, which meant children of the sun. It was the people who lived there. And so the Spokane tribe lived on this ancestral land forever and joined a, a few members of the tribe, joined a small battle against, uh, against settlers in the early to mid 1800s. And, and then this violence that was, you know, that was rained upon them, a, a cavalry colonel named George Wright rode through the river valley where the city is set, burning villages and gathering all the horses. And at the time, a tribe's uh, wealth was in its horses. And they put these 800 horses in a pen and shot them killed them all um, as a lesson to the tribe and to break their spirit. And so Seattle is the same way, you know, these um, Yakima, much of the, much of the names of these places derives from a history of cruelty. And so that, that's sort of where the novel begins in a way, even though it starts with two itinerant brothers, the Dolan brothers uh, arriving in this, in this town looking for work. In a way, the novel traces the entire beginning history of the city, beginning with, you know, that original movement. Movement. And then, then, of course, the tribe has moved to a reservation. And what follows is the explosive growth of this Western city. And I wanted to, really wanted to capture my city at the moment when it was its most vibrant and explosive. It, it was doubling in size every six years. It was like a boom town. I, was, I wrote in my journal at one point, this is like Deadwood if it had 100,000 people in it the sort of dawn of civilization with all its violence and cruelty and uh, and absurdities, you know. And so that's really the, the period that I wanted to capture was after the tribe's been driven away, when the city is exploding in that way because of timber and mining and the railroad, you know, just connecting the world the way the internet does now. And when one imagines a city like the television Deadwood, it's, you know, this city of mud and saloons and violence. And and then reading this book, I was picturing Westerns like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, you know, ones that are set in like mountains and forests and things. And But of course, Spokane at this time is already a place where there is a a very steep divide between the rich and the poor. So you have these, the mining magnates are all living in like extremely nice big houses. Yeah, that's one of the things that struck me. I collect old postcards and you would, I would see these street scenes of, of just, you know, it really looks like New York. I mean, in Chicago, it's, it's a small city, but in 1909, um, when the novel begins, it was considered the theater capital of the West. It had the largest theater and the, and it had these, the most wealth you could imagine. And because seven railroads came together in this one place, um, this is where all the copper from Montana, all the silver from Idaho, all the mines would, uh, all that money would sort of, Spokane was like a drain where all this wealth came, the agriculture to the South and then timber forests 
as far as you can imagine. So as this use of the land is creating all this wealth, the, these, these millionaires are living on these houses that line the hills like books on a bookshelf, these massive grand houses, you know, butlers, and they're sending their kids to Eastern boarding schools. But because of those seven railroads, you also have this incredible poverty. You have this tramp central station. This was how um, itinerant workers traveled from job to job was by hopping a boxcar as it passed through. And as as, re- as the trains come into Spokane from Montana, from Utah, from all the Central states, and then they fan out to Vancouver, British Columbia, to Portland, to Seattle, even to San Francisco. And so you have this sort of pinching and coming together. And so Spokane was a really unique place. And, and for someone who wanted to write about the gap between the wealthy and the poor, which has reached levels now that it didn't reach until hadn't reached since the last Gilded Age. Um, to write about 1909 Spokane is to is to almost drop into a thought experiment of what that gap between wealthy and poor can look like. We'll come to your fictional protagonist, Gig and Rye Dolan, in a minute, but they arrive in the city as you describe, like any other itinerant workers, like bums, tramps, hobos, and stiffs arrive in this city to find work. And let's talk about what would be the immediate situation for an itinerant worker turning up, the, the sort of situation that leads to the the free speech riots that the book is about. What would the conditions have been for a worker turning up in the city on a, on a boxcar? So this was the, the worst uh, economic period until the Great Depression. There'd been a run on banks. You know, agriculture was was failing in a lot of places. And so you had thousands of these homeless workers hopping trains, sleeping in hobo jungle. Um, in the novel, there, it was really interesting reading some of the literature from that period, the letters, the um, uh, you know books about that period. There was this distinction between hobos, tramps, and bums. A hobo was one who wanders and works. A tramp was one who wanders and dreams. And a bum was one who wanders and drinks. Um, and so Gig and Rye are very much of the hobo class. They're, they're going from town to town. They're trying to get a job in a sawmill where they might be on either end of a misery whip, which was bombs that took two men to operate, or they might get a job mucking mine waste, digging through the tailings of a mine, looking for anything that hasn't already been taken out. Um, Real rough work. The average lifespan might be 30 years. And when you arrive in a town like Spokane, the first place you go are to the job agents. You can't just show up at the mine. You go to a job agency and you would pay a dollar to these job agents or job sharks, as they were called. And Spokane had a street lined with 20, 30, 40 of these job agencies. And they would say, good work for good men, a dollar a job. You'd pay your dollar, get sent out to a mine or a farm or a log camp. And you might work two weeks and there might be a deal between the foreman and the job shark to split your dollar and fire you and bring a new crew in. And so you were just part of like water in a paddle wheel of this system. And so it really was such an un, such unfair working conditions. And in into the maw of this steps, the industrial workers of the world, this early proto-union that its tenants were that, you know, they were essentially were early socialists, but were using the labor movement, especially these itinerant workers. They said, we aren't representing carpenters or brick masons. We were all workers can join any human being with a job. And that included racial minorities, women, Native Americans, African Americans. It was the first union to really have the egalitarian belief anyone could be in. 
And so that was really the sort of idealistic um, moment that I wanted to try to capture this, this early labor movement and especially how they fought for these workers in Spokane. And so what was the, what were the, because the free speech riots that you talk about in Spokane happen in lots of different cities. So what were they? It sounds like, you know, somebody's been cancelled on Twitter or something for saying something (laughs) bigoted. No, yeah, no, it was, uh, it was the other end of free speech. It was fighting for it, not against it. It, um, yeah, the, at the time and Spokane was, was really the, you know, if, if you think of this as a war, Spokane was, you know, the Gettysburg, the, um, uh, you know, the, the D-Day, it was, it was the big battle in this free speech fight in part because the powers that be in Spokane decided that they would really fight it. But what, what essentially happened was the, the union was, trying to organize these these thousands of itineraries the city said you can't you can't gather on the street no more than three people can gather on the street but they made an exception for churches for instance or the salvation army and so it was really an attempt to just keep union organizers from you know from gathering the street and 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 firing up these workers and so the industrial workers of the world decided they would make a stand in spokane in in november of 1909 they called for a free speech day when people would gather on the street and just talk about the unfairness of the situation and try to um, sign people up to this early union the police cracked down the mayor the mining millionaires and timber barons gathered together and said, we're, you know, that they aren't going to win. And more than 500 people were arrested, jailed brutally, almost 30 packed in an eight foot by 10 foot cell under a steam spigot that turned it into a hot box. Eventually three prisoners were released and died. Many others had never recovered from their injuries. So the jail was full. The brig at a nearby fort was filled. They even closed a school that with prisoners and still more people flooded to the town until essentially they ran out of bodies to throw in jail. And it was a completely nonviolent protest by the industrial workers of the world. It was the first first nonviolent protest in U.S. history. And it was a model later for civil rights act to see how to you know, how to back this. And so the fact that this really occurred in my home city, it was just, you know, as a fiction writer, you can look forever and not find stuff like this. The fact that I was writing about it in 2019, 2020, when the United States was, you know, was in the grips of, uh, of Trumpism and, and, you know, this breaks were being given to the wealthy and union membership was falling. It felt like, you know, a moment for a working class kid like me to kind of return to the really idealistic roots of labor. This is about giving everyone, raising everyone up. Uh, and these free speech riots, the, you know, the, the heroes that, that kind of came about because it, of it just felt like such rich territory to, to explore. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. 
So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jess Walter, and we're talking about his latest novel, The Cold Millions. Jess, let's talk about your protagonists, Gregory and Ryan Dalton, who are two Irish immigrants who come into from Montana, come into Spokane, looking for work, along with all these other itinerant workers. Tell us something about them, about their backgrounds. Yeah, Gregory and Ryan, who their nicknames really appealed to me, Gig and Rye. I just felt like, you know, if you're writing about workers who don't have protection, who have to provide their own equipment, who can slip through the cracks, it felt like... Um, oh, the gig, gig economy. Rye, yeah, it was a Rye nod to the gig economy, exactly. And so um, <laughs> that's their two nicknames. And, and Gig is very much enamored by the IWW, um, by the idea of becoming a socialist, by being a speaker, by you know people paying attention to him. He's He thinks of himself as an academic because he trades books on what was called the Great Hobo Library. These traveling workers would carry one or two books in their bindles and their packs on their backs, and they would trade books out hobo camps and on work sites. And in that way, you could almost read yourself across America. And I just, I loved the aspirational quality of these men who have nothing using part of their very limited space to carry a book around. And so that's Gig. He's also a charmer who has caught the eye of a vaudeville star in the novel named Ursula the Great, who performs with a on stage with a live cougar. Uh, and then his brother Rye is very much more cautious, doesn't, you know, thinks that the uh, IWW is reaching too far and that it's more than a union and that it's not really going to get them ahead and get them a house. And they're very young. They're 23 and almost 17, and they are dropped. They really find themselves dropped into the middle of this incredibly violent and political situation. And because at the time, you know, the history of this labor movement and these labor wars in the West really does read like a wild Western with Pinkerton agents going undercover and kidnapping people and murders. And, and so they sort of fall into the middle of uh, all of this treachery. And, uh, and I, I have, even though they are the protagonists of the novel, I, in a way, I didn't think of them as the heroes. I thought of them almost as the field upon which all of this is played. You know, the real hero, I think, is uh, a woman named Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who's a labor activist who, you know, who Rye comes to travel with. Um, but, you know, Gig and Rye are the people who really witness all of this. And, you know, and it's their souls almost that are kind of at stake in this battle. 
Well, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn is is one of a number of real historical figures that appear in the book as characters. So I wanted to talk about your your approach here to using real historical figures alongside your own fictional creations in the story. I mean, I think that's a pretty common tact for historical fiction. You know, I mean, how many times has Abraham Lincoln appeared in a novel or Winston Churchill or, you know, we're, and, and to make them fanciful. I mean, there was a novel recently where Abraham Lincoln killed vampires. You know? So <laughs> I think, I think we're used to reading those big fictional, those big real characters and they appear in books almost like location. Like if I'm writing about, I'm not going to invent a London, I'm going to write about the one we know. And in the same way, I think Abraham Lincoln exists. I tend to see history as a kind of sub-history. I'm less interested in those characters that everyone knows and in the ones who have the cracks. And Elizabeth Flynn really... Um, someone who I felt slipped through the historical cracks, this fiery labor activist who was called the East Side Joan of Arc, um, was also called a, a she-dog of anarchy by the New York Times. And as a teenager, left school and went west to workers, um, became the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, their most fearsome and successful labor organizer, and also was a suffragist. Ten years before she had the right to vote, she's on street corners demanding the emancipation of the vagina and that workers be given rights. And this struck me as such a modern character. And go back to my original idea, if I was writing a Western, there's often a mysterious stranger who rides into town, you know, and and I thought, what if my mysterious stranger is not Clint Eastwood uh, or Gregory Peck, but is a 19-year-old pregnant labor activist calling for the emancipation of the vagina. <laughs> you know, I just thought, wild character. So writing those characters in into the world is is to both invent a fictional version of them. You know, she says some things in the books that she doesn't do and, you know, goes to places that she didn't really go, but also to really almost write that alongside the real character. And so I researched as deeply as possible. Almost everything she says in the novel, she said it in a speech or something. Um, you know, the the hotel in which she lectures the judge on the, the Bill of Rights actually comes from what she met at trial. And so as a as a former journalist whose research, you know, I, I think it I try to honor those characters while also allowing them to exist in this this fictional world that I've created. Let's talk about some of the the other real-life characters that appear in the book, so more significantly than others. There's a a couple of policemen. So right at the beginning of the book, we see a policeman being murdered. This is a man called Alfred Waterbury. And then the police chief of Spokane is, is, I guess, another Irish immigrant, John Sullivan. Tell us something about these people. What what can you tell us about Alfred Waterbury? Because he can't be that much known. As I was doing my research, I was stunned to see that three days before the the free speech riots that a police officer had been shot to death while investigating a burglary. And I thought, well, of course the police were fired up, you know, they were almost driven into this frenzy. And so it was all, it was a kind of another forgotten death that I wanted to incorporate in the novel in this sort of web of mystery about, you know, what happened at the time, you know, Spokane was really on this border between frontier city, frontier outpost and modern city. And there were, you know, there's still gunfights in the street. And at the end of this period, about a year after the the free speech issue was settled in favor of the IWW, this was Elizabeth Gurley Flynn's 
victory over these corrupt city officials. Um, John Sullivan, the police chief, um, as you said, an Irish immigrant with still a heavy brogue that the newspapers like to make fun of, was shot to death in his house. The, the crime was ostensibly never solved. And there were moments in that research, one that struck me in particular, that he shot through the back while he sat at the window and he looked down and saw the bullet in his lap and he set it on the table for the investigators to find. You know, there was just these moments that as a fiction writer, you can't even invent, you know, and so, but yeah, the, you know, the violence of that period, I did not have to invent, you know, there was so much of it, it was, it really was a place that that was on the verge of being settled. And so those were some of the characters. There are some, some other real-life labor activists, including Frank Little, who was later murdered in Montana, where he was trying to organize labor. So it, it was an incredibly violent and, uh, and rich period that fiction writer felt like undiscovered territory. You know, I, I hadn't seen a novel written about this early 1900s period when there are cars and horses on the street at the same time. You know, when we're just turning the page on what we think of as the Wild West. We've talked some about the research you did in the book in terms of the, the history of the times, but the book is also full of the amazing vernacular of the time as well. Tell me yeah. something about where some, where some of this rich language comes from. I mean, so much of it is in the songs of the Wobblies and in their diaries and in and I, I did. I I fell in love. The you know the very first word that I wrote of this book was the word bindlestiff, which didn't even end up being in the novel, but it's what they would call someone who carried their pack on the on their back. And just the sound of the word, it was as if a poet dreamed up this entire language. You know, bindlestiffs. And uh, and there's a character in the novel of Pinkerton who many of the Pinkertons had come from Ireland or. Wales or other places in the UK. And I was so intrigued by them traveling around the West that it got me to reading old 19th century, early 20th century British detective stories. And there was so much rich language that to me had been lost. And one character, Del Dalvo, announces himself by saying, Spokane gave me the morbs. And that word morbs, which was like a feeling of deep unease and um, danger, I thought, how do we not use that word anymore? <laughs> And so, yeah, the, you know, you'd go to a log camp and pound wedges in the curfs. And there were just so many words that almost had a meaning that I felt like you could get from context that I wanted to just drop you in and have you experience the sound of it. I wanted you to experience the morbs to be um, lobcocked, as, uh, as Del Delvo says. You know, I, I wanted the language to kind of speak for itself. Just one more thing for me, then, and then I'll, I'll get you to read a bit of the book, if, sure. if you would. Yeah, I said I wanted to talk about the sort of resonances of the book for modern America. And I guess we can most plainly see that through the um, the decline of unionism over the sort of late 20th century into the 21st, that, you know, where we end up with Trumpism, yeah. as you said, latterly. Um, tell us something about the sort of resonances of the resonances of modern America in the book. You know, as I said, the first thing that that struck me was this idea of income inequality, that we had reached, you know, the same heights of it as the last Gilded Age. So that was really the first thing. But but the deeper I got in, we were in a moment in the United States when we were really confronting, you know, the sheer racism and sexism and uh, patriarchy that, that the country had 
thrived under. And, and that's what these characters, that's what Elizabeth Gurley Flynn is fighting for. And then, and then the sort of destruction of the middle class of the United States. When I was a kid, one in three American workers belonged to a labor union. Um, by the time I wrote this novel, that number was less than one in 10. And alongside that, you'd seen the same decline in the middle class. You'd seen a similar gap between the wealthy and the poor and the losses in the middle class. And not to absolve labor unions of the of the issues and problems they had, the corruption of Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters, the, you know, the overreach of certain unions. You can't deny that a middle class was created uh, out of this sort of American carnage of, of the Great Depression and World War II. And so I think that those are the first things. But as I was writing the novel, you know, the country was really almost at war with itself, battling over these class issues that Trumpism came to represent, that Black Lives Matter came to represent. And it was one of the reasons I really wanted to write about youthful characters. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn is 19, Rye is 17, Gig is 23, watching the way young people were on the front lines in the battle for sensible gun laws in America, the way students who were walking out of schools for climate change, um, and then the Black Lives Matter movement, the police brutality, which becomes such an issue in the book. I think there are those moments in certainly in U.S. history and every country's history in which we see things cycle back around again. And we see these are not issues we solve, but that flare up again. And so many of those things felt like they were flaring up as I was writing this novel that I felt like I was writing the most contemporary historical novel that was possible. Can I get you to finish off with a, a reading? Yeah, sure. One, they woke on a ball field, bums, tramps, hobos, stiffs, Two dozen of them spread out on bedrolls and blankets in a narrow floodplain just below the skid, past taverns, tanners, and tents. Shotgun shacks hung like hound's tongues over the Spokane River. Seasonal work over, they floated in from mines and farms and log camps. Every flop and boarding house slept in parks and alleys and the pavilions of traveling preachers and, on the night just past, this abandoned ball field, its infield littered with itinerants, vagrants, floaters, Americans. The sun was just beginning to edge the mountains when Rye Dolan sat up halfway down the first baseline. He looked across a field of sleeping humps, his older brother Gig beside him, curled a few feet from the pitcher's mound. Rye turned back to watch the sunrise over the Selkirks, a smoky red gash where someone had set a fire to get a job fighting it. Last year, Rye might have paid to get a shovel on that blaze, but Gig had gone and joined the IWW, the union fighting the corrupt employment agents who charged a buck for job leads. Left untended, that same dollar could bring his older brother plenty of trouble, like last night. Pay in pocket, Gig Dolan liked to bounce from Dutch Jakes to Jimmy Durkins until the money ran out. And while caring for Rye the past year had half-tamed him, they were coming off three weeks apart. Rye picking up a late harvest near Rockford, Gig getting on a skid crew at a Springdale Law. Fired for union agitating, Gig came back to booze it up with East End labor pals and hawk day work at the city's vaudeville theaters. And it was there among the freaks and jugglers, the variety houses and leg shows that he happened to meet an actress named Ursula. Rye back can less than an hour before his brother was showing him a newspaper review of her show. And therein, said Gig, 
I'm at the Comique Theater last week hauling lumber for the carpenter when this red-haired vision emerges from her dressing room and says, well, who are you? And I say, the hero, of course. And she says, then you must get the damsel. And I say, every night, twice on Saturdays. And she says, I'll bet that second performance really suffered. And I smile back and say, oh, I don't know. It goes on longer, but what gets lost in zeal gets made up in familiarity. She went by the name Ursula the Great, the spokesman review referring to her as a spectacle of indecency and the last of four acts of increasing depravity. Gig talked Rye into using their sock money on a shared public bath, older brother taking the suitors hot, Rye settling for warm flotsam, and they got haircuts and nickel shaves, though a scrape was barely needed on Rye's baby face. And instead of boiling clothes over a cook fire, they paid for proper cleaning folds in the Chinese quarter. All gentlemen up, they got 50 cent seats at the Comique and settled in for some mild depravity. Blind accordion player, Bavarian juggler, wrestling match between armless and legless men. Until the curtain split for the finale, depravity number four, and the smoky stage lights revealed the sorts of gigs infatuation. Rye wondering what pinch-hearted critic came up with a word like depraved upon first glimpsing the flame-haired beauty strode into the lights in front of a big iron cage. For inside was a full-grown cougar pacing and snarling while the band played a hurdy-gurdy and the big cat stalked and ursulced around it, singing a few numbers and slow stripping to nothing but corset and stockings, kicking those long legs higher and higher, leaning her backside against the cage until all went black and the spotlight came up and the whole theater held its breath as Ursula unlatched the cage door and the big cat lowered its head hissed and spat, and brave Ursula ambered, ambled in as if going to her pantry for butter, closed the cage door behind her, and serenaded the beast, holding an ungodly high note as she ripped off the corset and, oh, the flash of flesh of narrow waist and pale back, and the fury of that mountain lion as it made to pounce at her bare breasts, which Rye could only imagine as she was facing away. And that was when Ursula tossed the corset at the cat, who tore it in lieu of her fair skin and drowned out by cheers and whistles. She took a silk robe from the back of the cage, slipped it on, tied the belt, and still singing over the roar of cat and crowd, Ursula the Great walked out of that cage in one lovely piece. So I've been talking to Jess Walter. We've been talking about his latest novel, The Cold Millions, which is out now in the UK from Penguin Viking. Jess, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you, Neil. It's great talking to you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.